Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben. Well, hey, I am back. I've been gone for two weeks, and you're alive. I'm alive. So uh, thank you, Christopher, for stepping in. Uh, he stepped in on short notice, and uh, it's just been it's been a crazy two weeks. But uh, but man, I've, I list, loved listening to what uh, you and Christopher had to say, and and uh, yeah, really really glad to be back today. Yeah, good to have you. Missed you. <laughs> well, here we go. So uh, we today we are covering section one fifteen through one twenty, and this is a really interesting part of church history because this is when we actually begin to get the persecutions in Missouri that culminate in the extermination order. And this is when the history of that all kind of starts to come together because very defining oh, moment here. Yeah, it is. Because in 1834, well I, I guess going back a little bit of a little bit of history, but in 1834 is when the Saints experienced the first kick being kicked out, right? The first removal from Jackson County. And then they went up to Clay County, which was north of Jackson County. And the people of Clay County are like, you can't stay here forever. So they ended up creating a county just for the saints, just east of Clay County. And they called it Caldwell County, right? And this is where far west is at. And this is where the saints had been gathering. And the deal here was, is that, hey, we'll give you guys your own county so long as you don't go outside of your county. So as everybody, all the Latter-day Saints, all these Mormons are coming in, you just settle in this area. And for the most part, for the next couple of years, they did that. And all of a sudden, the, the saints, they started getting along with their neighbors. And there was a lot of stuff that they were getting along with. And there was some trade that they were doing and people started opening up to them credit and they started to be friends with their neighbors, the Missouri neighbors, and things were actually pretty okay for them for the most part between 1835, 1836, and 1837. But what happened was is there's this this thing that happens at the end of 1837 where Joseph and the saints in Kirtland are kicked out of Kirtland, right? They're displaced out of Kirtland. So that's the second displacement in church history. And where are they going to go? Well, the Lord's, you know, you go to far west. And so now far west is now seen as the new gathering place. They can't go down to Jackson County. Adam on Diamond is north of Clay County in Davies County. And they're technically not supposed to be up there. As per this agreement that they have, that they're only going to stay in Caldwell County. But they end up having this little settlement up there that they call Diamond or Adam on Diamond, which we're going to read about today. And that's where the other settlement is outside of Caldwell. Well, as new immigrants start coming down, they start to actually form settlements and little boom towns outside of Caldwell County. And this becomes one of the first catalysts for why the Missourians start to come against the Mormons again, right? 
And so we're going to lend into a little bit of that. But this, this history is important to understand because once we, in section 115, where we start talking about Far West and about the importance of Far West, and then we start getting into the section 117, which talks about Newell K. Whitney and about Willie Marks, there were several saints who had not sold all of their lands in Kirtland yet to be able to finance and to come to, to gather in Far West. And so there's a lot of holdouts in, in Kirtland. And so this, this becomes an issue. They need to make sure that all the saints are gathering. So Joseph is trying to figure out how we best do this. He gets the revelation. That's 117. And then we end up with, with 118 and 119. And 119 specifically ends up being this message about tithing. And as we'll talk about, we'll open up more of a discussion. Tithing, it seems to be that there's this, this intent with tithing, number one, to help finance the church and help finance the building of a temple and help finance the getting rid of the debt. But they're also trying to incorporate this into a new modality of religious experience where they're making the ground itself sacred because we have to kind of recognize that they've been displaced now twice, once out of Jackson, once out of Kirtland. And they're not excited to ever have this happen again. In fact, we're going to talk today about two sermons in particular that Sidney Rigdon gave, one's called the Salt Sermon, and the other one's called the extermination, uh, the, his extermination talk, or it's his July 4th talk of 1838. And these two talks are actually, uh, this is where the conversation gets tricky, because a lot of the, you know, growing up in the church, we hear the narratives of the persecutions of the saints, and we tend to have more of this, what's called like a hagiography, or like a telling of the saints' stories where they did nothing wrong. Right, where everything that ever happened to them was completely unjust, unwarranted, and everyone just hated them for their their religion. When the truth of the matter is a little well, it's a lot more complicated, right? As as most things usually are. And so what we're gonna be talking about today is it's gonna seem a little bit more on what on the other side of the debate on everything that the church did wrong, but that's really because there, there's very few voices out there that are actually giving both sides of the story. And so, well, you know, what I intended to do is, is see if we can give a little bit more side to the other side of the story, the Missourians' side of the story, at least, in showing what they were doing to make sense out of this. And better context. To, yeah, better context, right. So I just want to give that in advance, because as we get talking, I don't want it to look like we're just completely on one side, <laughs> you know, saying really bad things, just because it needs to be more fair and balanced. And for time's sake, we could take many hours and then give both sides of the story and give a lot of context, or we can kind of show what was going on uh, and then leave it up to the listener to then go read more hagi more hagiographies or more texts from the church that give a more one-sided version of the church's story, right? So with 119, it's that this tithing seems to be given as their attempt to relocate, resettle, get regrouped in far west, and then focus on making everything sacred again. They just had built the temple in Kirtland. They'd had experiences with that. Now they're gathering in Missouri, and they're trying to kind of regroup, reform, and and make new experiences where they're at there. So that's, that's really kind of the, the idea that frames these, these few sections. But getting into section 115, there are a couple of things that stood out to me. Number one, Ben, this is a this is where they start to, this is the official name of the church now. 
<laughs> right. 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 So we have, uh, we've had a couple different uh, names of the church here from really from 1829 until 1834. The name of the church was just the church of Christ. So that was the official. This name is a of the fully church. fleshed out name of the church, right? right. Kind of had sort of frame framed names of the church before, but this is, you know, the, the more fully constructed. It's almost like, yeah, we talked about in previous sections where the idea of building the temple was this symbolic representation of of how the saints were supposed to construct this community um, and and dedicate it to God, right? And that was them, and the temple was this physical manifestation of that. And like we could even look at the name of the church this way that that you know over time they they kind of change the name from time to time and 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 it's almost like here they they've kind of decided okay this is the fully fleshed out name of the church this is the completed version of what it's supposed to be almost right yeah so the first name is the church of christ it is very simple it's very succinct mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the the next phase the next roll along is from 1834 to 1838 and then it's known as the church of the latter day saints uh-huh. And so, and so that's the, the really the next name. The, the church goes through two more evolutions, and from here in in section one fifteen, this is where we get the third the third step, where this is where we finally have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. But there's a special spelling here, and it de- actually doesn't appear in our scriptures. So the what appears in our scriptures right now is actually the eighteen fifty one to latter rendition. But from eighteen thirty eight until eighteen fifty one. There was a special designation there where it says latter day. Uh, in the in the current version, in the one that comes from 1851, day is lowercase, or the D in, in latter day is lowercase, and it's hyphenated. So it's latter hyphen day, mm-hmm. lowercase d, uh, d day saints. But from 1838 to 1851, it was capital latter space capital day. Mm-hmm. Sorry, capital D day. <laughs> yeah. I'll get this right. And so there, it was really because there were so many breakoffs that after Joseph had died that had claimed the title of Latter-day Saints that they wanted to be able to make a special designation for themselves, right? right. As, as the church. So what we see here in section, in section 115, verse four, it says, for thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with Latter-day with a hyphen in the lowercase d. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what we which is since. grammatically more correct, anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> See, we'll get uh, we'll because finally get Joseph there, right? Smith is all concerned about grammar. <laughs> <laughs> he was not obviously it was his number one concern at all times. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but Ben, you had said something here about uh, about verse seven. It said, "Let the city far west be a holy and consecrated land unto me." And it shall be called most holy, for the ground upon which thou standest is holy ground. Now, do you think this is an objective statement that the ground was objectively holy, that it was like it had been made objectively holy and was before all ends of the earth? Or do you think it, it, for you, is this more something that the saints come and in their experience and what they do kind of make it holy to them? So I think it could be either way. And I think it could be either way depending on what meaning the individual needs to pull from this. But what I see here um, is that 
you know, you talked about how the Saints had been chased from, you know, one place to another or kicked out of one place to another. And each place that they were in, there was some sort of, there was a story behind that place, right? Jackson County was supposed to be Zion, right? And so th- there was all these contexts and, and stories behind these places that were supposed to be holy. Now that they're in this place, it, this this is getting called Adam on Diamond, right? We're going to see in the next section here. This is like, this is proto all the way back to, to Adam, right? We're, we are taking back our heritage and, and what we are supposed to um, inherit as part of Adam's descendants, right? This is, this is going back to the, the earliest authority that we can go to in, in, in biblical history and claiming that and saying we inherit this land. Like this is, a, this is a super strong claim, right? Right. And, and, um, there's, there's a lot that could be discussed about that. Like as, as the saints at the time, I, I think certainly, um, believed that this was literally geographically, metaphysically, or not, not metaphysically, physically, the location where Adam lived, right? The, that's certainly the narrative even today in the church. Um, but <clears throat> I don't think it has to be understood that way. And there's many reasons for that. Um, I think that was given to them as a way to look at the place where they were and sort of a, a mode that you, you talk about by way of them understanding uh, what their inheritance was supposed to be and that that this land the Lord had prepared for them and they tied it to that physical geographic location. But multiple times throughout this, as we're going to see in these sections, is that the Lord actually isn't isn't overly concerned with a specific geographic location being the end-all be-all. He can make whatever place they settle in Zion. He can make whatever place they settle in holy. And that's that's actually what I think verse 7 is saying. You've chosen to be here, and you have sacrificed a lot to come here and unite as a people. And if you're united and you start building Zion, the land where you stand is holy. And so I see this, for the ground upon which thou standest is holy. And I kind of wrote in the margin, you know, whatever ground. You can make the place where you are holy by virtue of the fact that you are are seeking a relationship with God. You have these covenants that uh, are based on commandments, and that's all tied to the land. We're going to get into like the tithing thing and everything. And that's where I think that that concept comes in, is that we make a holy space. And by virtue of the fact that we have have decided that's it, the Lord kind of comes and says, stamp of approval, so to speak. It's It, it really goes along with the concept of sacrifice, like we're going to get in with tithing, because sacrifice means to make holy and but often we look at sacrifice as this idea that we're like giving something up you know that we can't have it anymore but if it's something if we're making something holy ultimately it's not things that are holy right these are just symbolic representations of us 
So it's a, it's a part of us that we give to the Lord. And the Lord really wants our whole heart, but in a symbolic way, he'll settle for a part of us. And so that's what sacrifice is. We, we give it to the Lord and from sort of an epistemic standpoint, we view it as giving something up. Um, but the Lord wants us to view it as giving it to him so that we can come into a relationship with him wherein he can tell us that we haven't lost anything whatsoever and that we only have everything to gain because uh, we are his children, right? Yeah. So I think here, again, with this concept of the ground upon which thou standest is holy, you've made it holy because of who you are. I like that. I don't even know if I have anything to follow up. I've been listening to that. <laughs> I'm going to think there's a lot of things here I'm going to think about. It, it, you know, I'm going to go back to these verses five and six here. Verily saying to you, arise and shine forth that the light uh, may be a standard for the nations. So there's some uh, Sermon on the Mount talk, there, right? You know, city on a hill type of stuff. And that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes, again, this is not a specific land um, because, I mean, the, the early saints seemed to think it was at some point, you know, when Zion's camp is marching back, they're going to go redeem Zion. They think we're talking about the land, right? Well, then, then they say, well, Zion goes over here and then Zion goes over here. And they kind of come to this realization that it doesn't have to be like a specific piece of land, right? We're talking about the pure in heart. We're not talking about a land, but you can settle in that land and call it Zion in a symbolic gesture about who the people are, after who the people are, right? So, upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. So, Several years ago, there was a talk given by Elder Kieran in General Conference um, titled this Refuge from the Storm. And his discussion was about the refugees, the tens of millions of refugees that there are throughout the world. And in just this past conference, um, there was another talk given by uh, Sister Eubanks from the Relief Society that kind of touched on the concept again. Um, I thought it was interesting that she mentioned there were over 80 million refugees now in the world, um, especially now that we consider what's going on in Afghanistan. So um, Elder Kieran especially, and then this was kind of taken institutionally as church and run from there, has taken this verse for our day and said, one of the main purposes of Zion is to provide a refuge from the storm. storm. And literally that's what you know, refugees are those seeking refuge. And is Zion not the ones to provide that? Should Zion not be the ones that provide that refuge from the storm? It's very ironic considering the the condition, the state that the saints are in at this time, because they are the refugees, right? They're running from place to place. And so they feel like they're supposed to find a land that can be their refuge. And to pull that forward to today and say that, well, Zion isn't just a place where you find refuge as a people. It's a place where you provide refuge 
as a people for others who are fleeing. Yeah. Yeah, again, I don't want to transition because I, I know what I'm going to transition to, but I don't want to transition to that, but I don't have anything to say. <laughs> you know, we did a – I'm thinking years back when we were recording a podcast for for LDS Liberty about the refugees. Mm, and yeah, at, that's right. that, at that time, it was about the Syrian refugees and and about our about our responsibility there and and the responsibility we have to to being our brother's keeper, you know, to use the Cain analogy. And, you know, that episode, I still think back to that episode. Um, and anybody can go look it up. If you go on ldsliberty.org and go to the podcast, I think they should still be up if, if you ever wanted to take a look at them. But, you know, t- talking about that, especially Elder Kieran, I remember when Elder Kieran gave that talk in conference where he talked about the refugees. And President Uchtdorf stood up directly afterwards. And you could tell he was, he was visibly emotional about, about that talk with, with tears in his eyes. And I, I, I've thought about that experience quite a bit. Uh, going back to Elder Karen's talk, I, and, and I would highly suggest I've gone back to Elder Karen's talk many, many times about refugees, and it's an absolutely beautiful talk. Um, as we transition here in verse in in section one fifteen of verse eight, it says, "Therefore I command you to build a house unto me for the gathering together of my saints, that they should worship me." So he, here we have the call to build another temple, right? So we're going to start to build another place where they can come in to worship and and to lay the groundwork and to prepare for it. And it says in verse 10, and let the beginning be made on the fourth day of July next. And from that time, from the, let my people labor diligently to build a house unto my name. All right. So this is in 1838. The saints are going to be kicked out of the state in October. So, so here mm-hmm. we have this, that this is being given in, in April of 18, April 26th. And towards the end of October is when the extermination order is going to be, is going to be put into gear and they're going to be kicked out of the, out of the state. So the question is, is man, what, what happened? <laughs> all of this, all of this history, what happened in these few short months that caused all of this to go on and that never let this particular commandment come to fruition in far west? Well, and the cornerstones are still there in far west, right? Yeah. I haven't, I don't think I've actually been to that, but I've seen the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And, and so, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what, uh, what happens there in the future and to see what, uh, what course the church takes and when. But I, I think it's interesting here that it mentions July 4th because that's a historically significant date for a completely different reason and mm-hmm. one that actually brings in a lot of uh, context to why the saints were, were kicked out of Missouri. So first off, what happened was is – so this is on April 26th when – this set when this section is given, when 115 is given. However, on June 17th of, of that year, so just a, a few months later, Sidney Rigdon, who had been displaced from Kirtland, was obviously upset. That had been his home for a very long time, you know, even before Joseph had come there. And that's where he had had his congregation as, uh, as, a, as a Methodist. Is, is Sidney's obviously upset. Joseph is obviously upset. They've been kicked out twice now, as I've said a few times. And so a lot of their rhetoric during this time was very militant. It was, it was very absolutist. And also during this time, they had started to have a few internal uh, problems and there had been a few dissenters. And of, of those dissenters were Oliver Cowdery and, and even of David Whitmer. So two of the three witnesses at this point were, were mm-hmm. dissenters. And the issue that they were having was that Oliver Cowdery had written in January 21st of 1838 that 
he was very troubled and had been very troubled for a, almost a year and a half over the Fanny Elger incident. Because and, and Fanny Elger is a really controversial figure, uh, and, and everyone has really strong opinions in, in church history, and it depends on where you fall. The original source documents and the primary sources that we have on it are, are rather interesting. Um, they're primarily from William McClellan, who by the time he started to write about it or to write letters to Joseph Smith III, who was who's the Joseph Smith's son, who later started the reorganized church. Um, a lot of the story from Fanny Elger we have from William McClellan's letters to Joseph Smith, telling Joseph Smith III to go talk to his mother about this alleged affair that Joseph had had with Fanny. So what had happened, though, is is from the, the Mormon side of it, from the Latter-day Saints side of it, Joseph had approached Levi Hancock, who was Fanny's uncle, and Fanny was living with Joseph and Emma at the time as kind of like a nanny, a housekeeper, a nanny, and Emma liked her very much and was very friendly to her. And Joseph had approached um, Levi Hancock to talk to his, her parents to ask if, he, if she would be his first polygamist wife. And so Levi says he goes over to talk with, uh, with the father, and the father says, well, whatever the mother says, and the mother says, well, whatever Fanny says, and then Fanny says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. So Fanny agrees from Levi Hancock's perspective and from what Joseph had said and what kind of became later the church narrative is that Fanny agreed to be his first polygamous wife. And this is where the story kind of gets a little bit crazy because Willie McClellan ends up writing in one of his letters that in 1847, he said that he talked with Emma about this incident and that Emma had said that she had um, basically walked in on this whole thing happening, right? So to quote Willie McClellan, he says that one night Emma missed Joseph and Fanny, uh, Fanny Alger. She went out to the barn and saw him and Fanny in the barn together alone. She looked through the crack and saw the very transaction. She told me this story was true. Was she's told me this story too was barely true. And so, from the LDS side of it, um, the story is told that this that the the very act, this transaction that Emma saw, was Joseph being married to Fanny. But there's also another side of that where that some scholars say, well, no, it wasn't the marriage; it was the consummation of the act, or it was the affair that she saw. Because they, they focus on the word, they were together alone. So scholars are on two sides of this, depending on if they're kind of apologists for the church or if they're, or if they're not. And then Oliver picks up on this, and Oliver is actually quite upset, and Oliver thinks it's an affair. He doesn't, he doesn't buy into the whole polygamy thing. So he ends up writing in 18, of January 21st of 1838, where he says, I did not fail to affirm what I had said was strictly true. Basically, that this was a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. And it, where he said scrape, he actually crossed it out and then wrote on top of it, affair. So it was a dirty, nasty, filthy affair. So this is why Oliver and David Whitmer, who are now living up in, uh, I believe they're living up in Adamondaomen at the time, um, they're... They don't think that Joseph has done the proper penance. Joseph is claiming that it was a marriage. They think it was an affair. And so this is the controversy. And so when all of this goes down, now Sidney Rigdon is really upset. And they're trying to figure out also how to deal with, with uh, Oliver and David because there was a small group of people, including Oliver and David, who had actually sold their properties in Jackson County, which Joseph Smith had said not to do. And so it, it looked like there was, they were spreading slander and lies and they were, um, 
selling the land. And, and, and so they, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so all of us, how do you deal with the dissenters? How do you deal with the people in your own midst? So Sidney Rigdon stands up on July, I'm sorry, June 17th, and he gives what's called the SALT Sermon. It's, be called, it's become known as the SALT Sermon, and it's where Sidney Rigdon denounces all of these, these Mormon, quote-unquote, apostates, right? And he compares them to the SALT that Jesus um, talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, basically, if the SALT has lost its savor, then it has to be cast out and trodden underfoot. But they don't really know what to make of this kind of kind of threat. But they, he ends up saying, then going on to say, there are no threats from you, no fear from losing our lives by you or by anything that you can say or do will restrain us. Uh, it says, for for out of the country you shall go, and no power shall save you. And anyway, so Sydney basically says that they're going to forcefully remove the dissenters out of their homes and out of their lands and kick them out of the town and kick them out from among the Mormons. And there's a problem to this, though, because it's a legal question. And the legal question is, is does, a re does a private religion have power to kick a private person off their private land? And so th this, is, this is kind of getting into this question that a lot of times Americans are, are upset with what they think is Islamic Sharia law, where an Islamic community will enforce their own coercive law and punishment outside of the U.S. judicial system. Now, this isn't the way it actually operates, but this is the claim that it comes against them, right? And this has been a hot topic over the last 20 years since 9-11 with, with Islamic communities in the United States. Now, that's not the way it works. And we did an episode on, on Islam and Mormonism for LDS Liberty to go back and to check on. There's a two-part episode. It's, it's really great with Christopher Hurtado. But here, the, what happened was is that some of the Missourians caught hold of this salt sermon, and they became wary and worried that the church was beginning to use coercive means of disposing people of their property without legal prop without the proper legal protocols being followed. Now, at the same time, there's also a, a group being formed called the they call themselves the Danites, right? And or they became known as the Danites, and it was really started by a guy named um, Samson Avard. Is it was his name? And so Samson Avard, there's been historical contro controversies, not the right word, ambiguity as to what and how much information Joseph had or how much influence Joseph had in the formation of the Danites. Um, different historians land on different, different sides of the conversation here. But what we, what we do know is that Joseph was aware of the Danites. Um, he did attend some of the Danites meetings. It was comprised of members of the church. And it was not an official organization of the church, but it did serve for two purposes. Um, its first purpose was to make sure that it was kind of a, an extrajudicial arm to basically enforce morality in the church, to make sure that all the church members were keeping the commandments and doing what they needed to be doing. Or the Danites would come in and would do whatever the Danites were going to do, I guess. Um, so it was, it was an enforcement arm of morality and of, and of keeping the commandments. Second, it acted as a, a de facto army to protect the saints from any kind of threat so the members would not be disposed of again from their lands, like from Jackson County or from Kirtland. So they had those two functions. So acting in that first function from Sidney Rigdon's Salt Sermon from June 17th or, 17th or 19th, um, I think it was the 19th, where Sidney gives a Salt Sermon, it's the Danites that then run up to go kick everybody off their land, but Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, everybody got wind of this, and they ran out and and abandoned their their land for fear of being killed. 
or being physically coerced or beaten up or, or whatever might happen to them. So this was the first kind of real issue where the Missourians started kind of like scratching their head thinking, what's going on? Well, the second thing that happens was what has been called the extermination speech. And this happens on July 4th. So after the whole debacle that had happened with the Salt Sermon and the Danites and going up and trying to get rid of the dissenters and the Missourians starting to wonder, like, what is going on? We also have to kind of recognize here that um, there, there's a few th legal questions. I, I, we may have covered this in a previous episode, Ben, so correct me if, I'm, correct me if I've already done it. Um, but there's a legal classification at the time between what's known as militia, vigilante, and mob. So these are like three legal classifications. Now, back before the Civil War, there was no standard U.S. standing army. Everything was a militia at the state level. But what happened was, is in the U.S. Constitution, as well as in most state constitutions, there was the ability for local communities to come together as an informal militia if there was ever a, a, an immediate need until the governor or someone who had the authority could form an official militia together. And so that unofficial gathering to to do immediate uh, defense or to immediately expel un unwanted uh, people was called where they were called vigilantes. So vigilantes were groups of official militia that had not been officially granted militia status yet until the governor had gotten around to it. And then there's this legal classification called mobs. And the mobs were just marauding gangs who had no vigilante status, no organization. They were just bad people doing bad things. Now, during this time of history, what's kind of ironic is that all of the Missourians considered their groups as vigilante groups, and they called all the Mormon Danite groups mobs. And all the Mormon Danite groups called themselves vigilantes, and they called all the Missourian groups mobs. Right. <laughs> and so, and so they were calling, they, they both considered themselves vigilantes of like being, having the authority to stand up to defend themselves. And the other person was the mob. And, and so right. they, they, they were doing this to each other. Well, this comp gets complicated because on July 4th, Sidney Rigdon stands up and he gives this extermination speech. It was called, it's been called the extermination. And he's actually the first one to start to use this word. And this is actually for Brigham Young. Wilford Woodruff, Orson Hyde, Jedediah Grant, they all later attribute this in later years as the catalyst of what created the, Mor the, the Mormon-Missouri conflict and war in 1838 in October. Okay, So this speech was co-authored uh, really by Joseph and by Sidney, and then later Joseph Smith is the one who says, we need to disseminate this, this wildly, to, widely to make sure that everybody knows not to attack us and that we're really serious. So I'm going to read here a little bit in part from what this, uh, what this says. So this is Sidney Rigdon in his speech on July 4th. We take God and all the holy angels to witness this day that we warn all men in the name of Jesus Christ to come on us no more forever. From this hour, we will bear no more. Our rights shall no more be trampled on with impunity. The man or the set of men who attempts, attempts it does it at the expense of their own lives. And that mob that comes us comes on us to disturb us, it shall be between us and them a war of extermination. For we will follow them till the last drop of their blood is spilled, or else they will have no they will have to exterminate us. For we will carry the seed of war to their houses and to their families, and one party or to the other shall utterly be destroyed. Remember it then, all men. We will never be the aggressors, we will infringe on the rights of no people, but shall stand for our own until death. We claim our own rights and are willing that all others shall enjoy theirs. 
No man shall be at liberty to come into our streets to threaten us with mobs, for if he does, he shall atone for it before he leaves the place, neither shall he be at liberty to vilify and slander any of us, for suffer it we will not in this place. We therefore take all men to record this day that we proclaim our liberty on this day as did our fathers, and we pledge this day one to another our fortunes, our lives, and our sacred honors be delivered from this persecutions from which we have had to endure for the last nine years, or nearly that. Neither will we indulge any man or set of men in instituting vexatious lawsuits against us to cheat us out of our just rights. If they attempt it, we say, Woe be unto them. We this day then proclaim ourselves free with a purpose and determination that never can be broken. No, never, no, never, no, never. Unquote. Now, on the surface, this seems like a very... When we look at the Latter-day Saints and we think of the Latter-day Saints, we're like, they didn't have any intent to go out and to do harm. In fact, they explicitly says that we will never be the aggressors. But what this ends up translating to, to the Missourians who had learned to be at peace with the Latter-day Saints, as they start to disseminate this into the surrounding counties, all of a sudden the Missourians are like, what is going on? Because from their point of view, things had finally been at peace. Like there was no, the Mormon religious practice was not in question. It had nothing, it really had never anything to do with their religion or their beliefs. People thought they were weird. People thought they were fanatics, but nobody really cared. They didn't break the law. They were just going to live over there in their own county, and and we can do business with them as long as they are honest and, and pay their bills, right? And so this was largely the Missourians' attitude at the time. But when this, but when the extermination speech came up, and all of a sudden they, they end up fixating here on the war between us and them to a war of extermination. We will follow them till the last drop of their blood is spilled, or else they will have to exterminate us. So this is not just coming to— It's a little to, heavy. <laughs> it, it is heavy, right? And it's not just militia on militia. It's not just vigilante group on vigilante group. It's to carry the seat of war to their houses, to their families, and one party to the other to be utterly destroyed. So this this is not just a standard speech of saying, if you come against us, we're going to defend ourselves and I'm going to kill you in the process and I will defend myself and my life with your life. This is, if you come against me, I'm going to come hunt you down and I'm going to come find your family and I'm going to come find your kinsfolk and I'm going to kill all of them, right? It's pretty reminiscent actually of how uh, Captain Moroni writes his letter to Pahoran, or not to Pahoran, um, to a Amaron, right? Brother of Amalekiah. <laughs> He's like, right. you know, if you don't do this, then we're going to, I'm going to arm my women and my children. And it's going to be a war of extermination. We're going to come and we're going to, you know, blood for blood and we're going to invade and take you all out. <laughs> it's a <laughs> very, very type of hyperbolic uh, uh, type of threat, right? Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And, and, and maybe in the time of the day, they didn't mean it to sound like that, but that is very much the way it ends up sounding. And in fact, Brigham Young ends up saying that Elder Rigdon was the prime cause of our troubles in Missouri by his 4th of July oration. So even Brigham Young is saying that speech was what made all this happen. Yeah, for Brigham Young to say that, that's quite the thing. <laughs> Right. So, so it's really from this point then that that was what happened on the 4th of July. That was the day that extermination talk, that extermination, what became the extermination talk is what we're talking about here in section 115 verse 10, where it says, and let the beginning be made on the 4th of day, the 4th day of July next. And from that time, let my people labor diligently to build a house into my name. 
right? That was the, that was the meeting. That was the public gathering and the celebration of being able to build the temple was the extermination speech. And they, and they, and they, and they, they promoted it all, all over the place. Now, over the next several months, the Danites end up doing things they're not supposed to be doing. Um, little known part of Mormon history is that um, at some point, the Danites will actually go through um, up into Davies County, where far or where Adama and Diamond is. And in the middle of October, over three days of snow, the Danites kick out every man, woman, and child into the snow. Any non-member, they kick them out into the snow. They rob all of the Missourian settlers of their possessions, including some shopkeepers that had even given extensions of credit to the saints. They stole all the shopkeepers' possessions, and they took it all up to Far West, and they distributed it among the saints. Right, so we don't we don't really ever hear that part of the story, and and that really becomes the the catalyst for re- that one. And there was another skirmish before that that had happened, um, where the 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 Mormon militia had squared off against the the kind of the Mormon vigilante group, rather had squared off against where David Patton Mormon. dies, I think, right? Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's these two skirmishes: the the Danites and the Saints in in Diamond ransack all of the non-members, kick them out. There's women who miscarry. You know, there are, there's a lot of travesties that the Mormons did to the, to the Missourians in Far West or in uh, Davies County. And then that's when the militia shows up in Far West. And that's when, that's when Joseph is uh, eventually arrested because of, it was because of that, that act of turning out everyone from their homes. So everything that had happened in Jackson to the saints, the saints in turn did that to everybody there in Davies. And so finally, it was, it's kind of interesting because when the, uh, when the, the militia came in and started to make an account of all the possessions that had been stolen, the Latter-day Saints, the, the, the Saints there said, well, we didn't steal anything. We didn't take anything. And they said, and the militia is like, well, listen, if we come out here tomorrow, we're going to come house by house and we have a documented list of everything that was taken. And if we find it, we're going to take you to jail, right? Um, for theft. And the next morning when the, when the Missouri militia shows up, there's this huge pile of furniture by the Bishop's storehouse of all the stolen goods from the Missourians by the Bishop's storehouse. And because the saints had like taken everything that they had stolen and they put them in a big pile (laughs) just so they wouldn't know who actually took it. Right. And then, and uh, yeah, so, so, you know, so that stuff is going on um, from time to time, but this gets into a lot of other interesting church history. Like for instance, uh, Thomas B. Marsh, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time, you know, as it's told in Sunday school manuals all the time, he leaves the church because of what's called the skimming story, right? Because his wife was a part of the women's group who would milk the cows and they would take the top layer of, of milk fat, that really creamy, tasty portion of the top of the milk, and they would take that top skimming off and they would give the top skimmings to, to the people in need. And Thomas B. Marsh's wife was accused of of taking the lower cream and give and donating that and keeping the the upper fatty cream to herself. And of course, she denies doing it. Thomas B. Marsh says he sides with his wife. And that's why we hear over and over again from our from our Sunday schools about why he leaves the church. When in fact, the real reason he leaves the church is because as as a Latter-day Saint or as as the leader of the Twelve Apostles, he's completely against the Danites from the very beginning. And he even ends up publicly writing a letter. Um, I think it's with or is it with Orson Hyde. Um, I can never keep Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt aside. I think, it's, uh, <laughs> but one of the Orsons. He writes a public letter in the newspaper, and he denounces everything that the saints did in in ransacking the homes and in doing all these things, and he, and basically is saying th- there is a Latter Day Saint here who's not involved in any of that, 
right? And that becomes the grounds for his excommunication. But what happens was, is that years and years and decades later, as he makes his way to Utah and is rebaptized in the church, his wife, his wife has passed away. It kind of becomes this, uh, this moment when the church can basically bring him to terms and, and to bear for his, his apostasy in the last days. And there's no direct evidence to show for it, but it's, it, there's very much this flavor that he ends up writing a letter of an apology. Uh, basically I was wrong. I was an apostasy. I was darkened, etc. But the funny thing was, is that when he was talking about being against the Danites and not ransacking and not using violence, he was talking about the sermon on the Mount he, like he said, this is not Jesus's way. And then when he started to talk against, talk against, uh, about the Missourians, he's like, we should love our enemies and go out there and to befriend our enemies and to get to know them and to suffer and sacrifice for them. Right. Very anti-Nephi Lehi-esque. And so when Lorenzo Snow ends up writing about the follies of, of Thomas B. Marsh, he he criticizes Marsh and as as a man of apostasy because he sought to love his enemies and he thought that loving the enemies he could reconcile himself with the, with the Missourians and how how fallacious and how how folly ridden was that and so then Lorenzo Snow is the one who's like he really apostatized because he was so ignorant because of the skimmings story and that's the story that sticks and that's what we get into our narrative and so really this is a very complicated time for the saints. There's a lot of people here who are very militaristic. There's a lot of people here who, who kind of, I, I really think Joseph and Sidney really didn't think that this would come. I think they were kind of chest thumping a little bit, thinking that they could really like show themselves as something bigger than they were. And that they could really, by doing that, showing a, a show of force or a show of courage or a show, a show of power that th then they wouldn't have to endure being kicked out again. But then everything comes and topples in on them um, in October, and then that's when we get the extermination order. So anyway, the reason why I wanted to bring up that history is just because by the end of section 120, the next section in 121 isn't until Joseph is out of Liberty Jail. Because out of this whole fiasco in October with the extermination order, Joseph is arrested and taken down. He's tried, he's put into Liberty Jail, and that's where he spends the winter of 1838 in the in the early spring of 1839 in Liberty Jail. And he finally gets out in, uh, I think we, we looked it up, it's April 6th, right? He gets out on April 6th? Correct. So just a lot of, it, it's a lot of really interesting history. Now, as I said at the beginning, that's kind of the Missouri, that, that, that's, that's a little bit more of the other side of the context. That's not, I'm not giving this as the whole story. There's a lot of other, the other side of the story here as well. But at least hopefully this kind of gives more of a balanced narrative so that from what you do already know, you can add this to it to realize that this wasn't as neat and cut. This, this really wasn't a religious issue. This was about a religious people on one side. And on the other side, it was the Missourians wondering if this religious people were going to actually adhere to the law. And they both had reasons to distrust each other. And they both had legitimate reasons to distrust each other. But the Missourians did have legitimate reasons. And the Latter-day Saints did give them legitimate reasons because they weren't always perfect. So anyway, a little bit of context there in 115 as we're going through here. and Because you can definitely see, Ben, as we're going to talk about here and finish this up, is they were really trying to make that ground sacred. They really had their mind focused to trying to make this a sacred event and to reincorporate their whole view of Zion and to, and to bring about that thing of Zion. But we also see the complication that a lot of these people, a lot of these members, 
were very militant, and even Joseph and Sidney even fell into very militant rhetoric at the time. Yeah, I, I, I really can't imagine. You know, I've not experienced anything like that before. Um, I can't imagine how I might react and what sort of um, trends I might get pulled into or what sort of rhetoric might <laughs> fire me up necessarily. <laughs> you know, I'd like to think I would act in one way, but it does really um, give some fascinating context to the very next section, you know, next time that we're going to talk about, which is 121, which presents such a, a concept, an idea, an ideal, a narrative that is so different from what many of the saints at this time were were experiencing or 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 um practicing right and obviously you know we don't get <laughs> history doesn't tell um many stories about the people that turn the other cheek right they just don't end up being very interesting stories a lot of the time and so, um, even if this is a regular or common occurrence from time to time or in various places, you really have to dig to find those accounts, right? When you study history, what is it that history talks about? It talks about military conquests, uh, political upheavals, um, state succession of rulers, things like that, right? Um, it doesn't really talk a lot about, you know, in general, history is always focused on those things. So it's always been fascinating to me to think, what is it that's really going on here underneath the surface? Um, what are the meek of the earth really experiencing and doing at this time that we don't hear about? Because history doesn't really concern itself with the meek for the most part, Um now, it's not that we can't find that sort of stuff. We can, but you really kind of have to dig for it and sometimes read, read between the lines to get it. And so putting all of that as, as a precursor to Section 121 really, really kind of makes it stand out in stark contrast of this is what the saints experience, are experiencing and, and um, practicing, and then this is what the Lord is telling them about it. And uh, I, I I don't know how we're going to comment on that, but it's something to really that makes you pause, right, and sit with that for a while. I wanted to go uh, just look at something that kind of stood out to me about verse twelve, and and it it goes along with a theme that I've been developing over the past several sections, and it's this. Uh, verse twelve says, "Thus let them from that time forth labor diligently until it shall be finished." From the cornerstone thereof unto the top thereof, until there shall not anything remain that is not finished. Now, obviously, this is um, explicitly talking about the physical building of the temple, but there's there's more going on here. Um, implicitly, the Lord's not just talking to them about a building; He's talking to them about their community, their people, the church, Zion that they are to labor diligently until it shall be finished or in another i you know in another frame perfected 
what do we have at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? We have that verse, be therefore perfect. Okay, that that's like the capstone here of the Sermon on the Mount because it's it's like you you know Christ gives this whole discussion and sermon about uh, a roadmap to him and who he is and how he exists in the world and then points to God as that that perfect complete finished so to speak example. So I think uh, interesting here again going along with the concept of the temple being this physical manifestation of what the people are invited to become collectively and individually um, that they put their intentionality into this this building but then in a symbolic way it's supposed to be representative of of who they are as a people and so this is kind of this is where we could kind of pull a narrative of the restoration from right that that it's this building that's being restored or built so to speak and that they as a people are to be laboring to build this to construct this to build zion until it's finished right there shall not anything remain that is not finished right just keep working on it So I think that's all that I had to say about uh, section 115. Um, here, do you have anything else on there? No, I, I, but I like what you had to say there, just about the uh, about verse 12, about about pre- preserving. I think that's I think that's great. You know, Adam Mondeyam, and you had some uh, you had a few things to say about Adam Mondeyam. And Christopher actually called me up here not too long ago, talking about Adam Mondeyam and himself, and, and about a pre- the previous episode and and about the, <laughs> the name of it um, with the Antonia Lehi's. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, I was texting with Christopher a little bit about it because there's some some linguistic um, curiosities there. Joseph Smith is very even even by this time he's very steeped in Semitic language. He's very interested. He's always been interested in in Egyptology, right? I mean, from from the time of the Book of Mormon, where the Book of Mormon is written in these uh, Reformed Egyptian, right? And so this Egyptian concept is, is forefront in his mind, which is, you know, Semitic in origin. He studies Hebrew, things like that. So that we, we get these little terms thrown in there that seem to have these kinds of origins. And uh, we're not sure whether these are um, innovations of, of Joseph Smith himself in order to present a concept, or if these are word for word revelations or, or not. You know, there's a lot of discussion around just the phrase Adam on Diam. And um, I see this more uh, personally as a, just a way that Joseph Smith is trying to um, present a concept to the saints about um, the, the legacy of the revelation from God. And he's tying it all the way back to Adam, as far back as scriptural record gives us. And this is what, you know, we talked about, I talked about earlier in in the podcast about what authority that sort of pulls into the discussion. You know, for Joseph Smith to say, yeah, the things that I'm talking about now go all the way back to Adam. You know, this is the original authority is Adam. It kind of reminds me of um, 
is it uh, John Locke's first treatise on government where he kind of like gives this premise that, well, you know, Adam is the one that really had authority, but we've, we've sort of lost um, the, <laughs> right. the patriarchal line. So we don't really know who, who has authority, you know, but, but it, it's interesting that Locke kind of ties this authority back to Adam. <laughs> I thought that was kind of <laughs> interesting, but it, it's a little reminiscent of that, you know, Joseph Smith's kind of evoking this Adamness authority of the, of the gospel of the revelations that he's presenting. And so even the land is, is named after Adam, right? Where we're supposed to settle. And this is where God wants us to be. God wants us to be the, um, though the people who inherit the legacy of Adam all the way back to Adam. So again, going back to this, this concept, Adam on diamond, um, the linguistically there, that, that preposition there, uh, on die or on D, um, could be related to a Semitic term that that is denotes uh, closeness um, or possession or um, adjacency to something, and so it's it's almost like we're talking about Adam being with God or God being with Adam, and it sort of evokes the Old Testament term Emmanuel, right? You know, God is with us. And so that's kind of where where my mind went on this is that, you know, this is the place where God was with Adam. You know, this is the place where man can truly commune with God. And, you know, symbolically, we look at this valley and, and you know, they got to this, this valley and they were overlooking it from a hill and it was beautiful and they, they just thought this was great. Surely there's significance to this place, right? Um. Surely this is a place where man can commune with God. Sort of going back to their their mindset of the temple being this place that they physically construct, that's a place where they can worship and commune with God. Um, so this placement was holy. And so naming it Adam on Diamond, where Adam, you know, our predecessor actually, you know, uh, physically came face to face with God. I think evokes that same concept there of holiness and that man not only is seeking to ascend to be with God, but that God also is willing to condescend to be with man. And this is a place where that can be. So. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that I was reminded of a, of a verse here in section 51 verse 17 and it's one that my wife and I, that Rachel and I have used throughout our lives, when we, especially when we moved so much. <laughs> I think I've, <laughs> I've talked about it before, but until we moved to Bakersfield and kind of set down roots here, we, we'd moved, I think, 23, 24 times in 10 years, right? And, and it's just, that's a lot of times to move. That's a lot of awards. That's a lot of new people to get to meet. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so there's this verse in section 51 that says, let them act upon this land as for years. And for us, and the meaning that that took on for us is that we knew we were going to be in, only be in, in some place for a short amount of time, and yet let them act as though they were going to be there forever. Because when you're only there for a short amount of time, you tend to be like, eh, I'm only going to be here for a little bit. You become a little bit apathetic. You don't unpack all the boxes, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so for us, that was really a, a, a kind of a pull for us to be able to say, you know, you're here, you may only be here for a few months. Live here as though you're going to know these people for the rest of your life, right? 
And so when I when I get into into section 117 after on to Adam on Diamond and we start getting into 117, the, 117 is this pull from you know selling like you know what everything in Kirtland we're not going there anymore. You know there's this uh, there's a story about burning your ships, but it's give up everything that's tying you to your previous life. And there's very much a metaphor here in 117 that I see that there's so much in our lives that we want to hold on to, that there's there's beauty that's happened before. You know, in a lot of ways, you see that in Kirtland, beautiful things happened in Kirtland. And beautiful things happened before they became members of the church. They moved there. They had these beautiful experiences. They had community. They, they, they were there. They had had and formed these bonds with people and people they would be leaving, right? And... You can see, uh, I can see how these saints would not want to let go of the beauty. Uh, and it's more than just nostalgia. Well, they've we given have, so much to, to build the temple. I mean, they're in their poverty and they're still, you know, they build that building and to leave it behind. Oh, yeah. Right? Even, yeah, even that, right? All of the sacrifice that they'd done as members of the church and for those who'd been there before. And Newell K. Whitney had been there before. He, he was one of the... One of the what, what what my kids would say one of the OGs, <laughs> he's he was one of the the original people who were there, and now Joseph is like let that go, and so as I've read Run Seventeen, I've I've been thinking a little bit of of what in my life do I not let go of, what what in my life are there things that I I find beauty in that I have found love in, I, I have even found God in, but yet that God calls me into new things and calling me into new things often requires letting old things go and letting God be God. And in that way of letting God be God, trusting in that process of letting life take its course with God, and anyway, we have we have this verse here of Newell K. Whitney and William Marks being a little bit chastised because they haven't let it go, right? Yeah. And and they want they have to, their businesses. They want to have their businesses. They want to have their lands. They want to have the things that they've worked hard for. They want to have those things that they've they've built to, to cherish and the entire culture, everything that they are, everything that they that's around them that informs them about what their life is is wrapped up in these things. And yet the Lord is saying, everything that you think you are and all the successes and all the measurements of success, everything that you think has brought you to this point, let it go. You know, and for me, this is very much the, the first beatitude of, be, of the poverty in spirit. It's, it's the relinquishing of even the goodness that we think we've had in life. When God calls us into a new moment, to trust in God in that new moment. And because even though we've had moments of the divine, even though they had the Kirtland temple, they still needed to leave Kirtland. Even though they had all those experiences of what made them who it made them and all of the suffering and sacrifice and everything, all of the experiences, the joys, the pressures, they had to let it go. And so what things in our lives that have brought us joy that have brought us closer to God, that are no longer working. Does God call us into something new and we refuse to go because we're holding on too ardently to the past? 
And so that verse came back again when you were talking about to, to live on the land as for years. And so here in verse here in verse six and seven, for have I not made the fowls of heaven and also the fish of the sea and the beasts of the mountains? Have I not made the earth? Do I not hold the destinies of all the armies of nations of the earth? Therefore, I will not make solitary places to bud and to blossom and to bring forth in abundance, saith the Lord. Is there not room enough on the mountains of Adamandiamon and on the plains of Ola Shanana, Shaneha, or the land where Adam dwelt, that you should covet that which is but a drop and neglect the more weighty matters? You know, God is in everything in our lives. We learn in section 88 that God is in and through all things. In, in this, yes, God is in our past, but he's also in our future. And just because God has been in our past and has brought us through the things we've been in our past, it doesn't mean that we always have to keep those things sacrosanct. And when he calls us into something new, trust it and be able to move into that. Because if we hold on too ardently to the things of the past, we begin to idolize the past as a nostalgic experience. And, and, and even when we start to idolize those experiences themselves, as opposed to trusting God to bring us into new and yet even possibly more glorious experiences, because we're always living behind ourselves. So I think it was just, so 116 and becoming present for that, that was very much that looking forward with God, then looking back, because we can look back and see all the glories that God has bestowed upon us and everything that God has been with us through the good and through the bad. But we don't necessarily have to take it all with us. <laughs> we, we can let it go, right? And he even does say that in verse 5, let the properties of Kirtland be turned out for the debt, saith the Lord, let them go, saith the Lord. I think it's a, just a beautiful moment and a way to, to be able to express that. It is. These verses from four to eight are, there's quite a bit of depth there. You know, and we could read them very superficially. He's always just talking about these properties. You need to sell these properties and come and live there. But there really is so much more going on here in terms of, of their hearts, because that's what the Lord's speaking to. You can say you can, what, what we really need to do is, is look at where your heart is. Is your, is your heart in a place where these things don't have hold on you in, in that way? You know, covet not. Repent of their sins and all their covetous desires before me, saith the Lord God. For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? Right? He calls all of those things in Kirtland that they've spent all these years building up over in, in verse eight, he says, they, they are but a drop. <laughs> um, you know, the, there is a part here to verse five. It says, let them go, saith the Lord, and whatsoever remaineth, let it remain in your hands, saith the Lord that degree of surrender it's almost I, I kind of envision in my mind um you know someone opening their hands and closing their eyes and whatever's gonna go is gonna go and then you open your eyes and you see there are some things still here for me and those things are still important 
So whatever remaineth, let it remain in your hands. Um, we've we've talked about this before that that often we do have to kind of step back from all of the uh, all of the baggage that we've built up around um, the the very particular spiritual revelations or experiences or whatever you want to call them that we've had that sometimes we we really um we pile a lot of stuff on those we infer a lot of things and it's really helpful for us to kind of go back to those those core things and and things that we've revealed and kind of take off those layers let them go and and see where where those things really are what remaineth right let those things go what what remains and at the end of verse eight, the weightier matters, the weighty matters, I guess you could say. I say weightier matters because this is an allusion to, uh, is this not an allusion to Christ when he's speaking with the Pharisees and, and says that they neglect the weightier matters of the law, that they're more concerned with with all of the particularities of, of performances and ordinances, and they neglect the weightier matters of the law. So... If that, that we step back and really examine those things and, and see where, where our heart sits. This, this also makes me think of Nephi and his discussion about line upon line and precept upon precept and and that we we don't assume that the Lord can't give us more just because he's given us one thing. That the more can't help to to reframe and reinterpret the things that we've see, received before and that we don't close ourselves off to that that we can still respect what the Lord has given us um, and and accept that he has more to give us and uh, realize that sometimes that more that we receive may require that we let go of some of that baggage that we have built up around the things we previously had. Um, I know we've talked before about the analogy of, you know, of, of, a revelation being kind of like a hook on the wall and we sometimes like hang some coats on it. Right. <laughs> and, right. and at a certain point that, that hook or that shelf, so to speak, can't hold that baggage anymore. <laughs> and, uh, we, we kind of have to, to clear, you know, it's, it's not strong enough to hold all that we put on it. It's not that it's not important, but we, we really, we belabor it with too, too many things. Um, and the Lord wants us to to let that go and see what remaineth, like this verse says. I I really think there's a ton here in these verses that is pretty profound about a very practical, real world application of that first beatitude. Right? Uh, it is beautiful. Yeah. You know, it, we, when we were talking before recording, you brought up verse thirteen when it was talking about Oliver Granger. Therefore, let yeah. him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord, and when he falls, shall rise again. For his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. That's an, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, you know, even in light of in this next section where we talk about tithing being a tenth of our increase, um, there is a broader discussion to be had here about sacrifice, and it's one that we've brought up before that so much of our narrative around sacrifice 
involves us giving something up. And, and, and it, what's interesting about that is it's kind of fits into the Beatitudes, right? When, when there's that poor in spirit and then the mourning, the, the lot, the mourning of the loss. But, but then coming in to realize that, that there wasn't anything of value that was really given up, so to speak. It was more a symbolic, our giving to the Lord, our will. Uh, Neely Maxwell talks about this in, in a talk. I think I brought it up last podcast where ultimately, you know, there's nothing we possess that's property, you know, is ours, so to speak. Um, the Lord has provided it all. That's why he says earlier in this verse, you know, what's property unto me? Um, it's just a drop. <laughs> um, but that, that we, we sometimes, you know, are, are, are so fixed on that. Um, as, as something that we're, we're giving up rather than realizing that the sacrifice isn't about giving up some material thing. It's about making ourselves holy. And maybe that's just an epistemic making ourselves holy because we're children of God. So we are who we are, but there is that realization in that moment of the, the divesting of that thing. And even, a, even a time of mourning that we come to that realization of our holiness and and that's what sacrifice is. It's it's that realization, um, e- epistemic or metaphysical of of our holiness. I think. Yeah, I like that. You know, and kind of going along with that as well, it, the the concept of tithing. You know, I, I've been involved in more conversations than I care to admit about the the history of tithing and about what it means to be able to pay a tenth of, of the increase, right? Of of how oh, that yeah. plays out. And, and there's a lot of really great history out there and this has never been my soapbox. So this isn't one of those things that I get out there and I study voraciously, but what I, what I do wanted to talk a little bit about was tithing as a, as a modality here, because I think that has a lot to do with how they're trying to make the ground sacred. So hopefully we can take the conversation that way, but I will say this, that the church website, there's this conversation about paying, about what does it mean to pay a 10th, right? Because historically it was, it was on the increase that you had from the time before. And so if you had, you know, if you had a hundred sheep and then you ended up having an increase of 10 sheep, then you would pay a tithing on the 10 sheep. So it'd be one sheep would be your tithing, not another, right. you know, not another 10. So it's, it was the increase. So if you ended up having 110 sheep, so that's how that worked out. Things have changed economically so much that, you know, <laughs> framing that in that way is, is, is make is more difficult. Yeah. It's more, is more difficult. Right. And, and there's a lot of different reasons for why we do this. And, and as I said, historians of the church have been, have been all over this conversation, but what I, what, the other conversation is, do you pay on 10% of your gross or do you pay 10% on your net? And to this, what I love, I love is on the church's website. Um, so if you Google, do I pay tithing on my income before taxes are taken out or on what I receive after taxes? <laughs> Remember that phrase because <laughs> that's what the article's name is. Do I pay my tithing on income before taxes are taken out or on what I receive after taxes? But what it says here on the church website is, the first presidency has answered this question in this way. The simplest statement we know of is the statement of the Lord himself, namely that members of the church should pay one-tenth of all their interest annually, which is understood to mean income. No one is justified in making any other statement than this from, from March 19th, 1970. Unquote. It says, in other words, the way you define your income and consequently your tithing is a matter between you and the Lord. 
Prayerfully seek the Lord's guidance on issues like taxes, gifts, scholarships, and other matters to determine what qualifies as a full tithe. Right? Yeah. Now, I, I love this because I, I do know that there are many local leaders that have very, very, very strong opinions about what constitutes tax, tax, you know, whether or not you pay before or after you tax, whether or not you yeah. do it on your gross or your net. But as far as the church is concerned and as far as what they say is that there's this is between you and the Lord. This is leadership can have local leadership can have their opinions. But where it comes down to the church, it says, in other words, this is between you and the Lord. Pay the 10% on what you feel is necessary for you and the Lord. Now, that said, the modality here, I think it's interesting, Ben, because we're, we're looking here at them trying to be connected more to the land. This live on the land as for years. The, the Lord is bringing them. Now, with the Lord's all-encompassing, all-seeing eye of God, he knows that in just a few months they're going to be off the land. So why all the talk about them building right then and there, right? What's that all about? And I think in a process, it's not about the end result. It's right. about everything that you do, live on the land as for years. And so no matter what you do, you do it with the full integrity. And, and, and there's another, and I can never remember whether it's John Taylor or Wilford Woodruff, but I think it's Wilford Woodruff. And we have to remember is that these early saints were... Militant isn't the right word. Rabid is a little bit <laughs> <not even> really <laughs> the right word. But they were very millennialist. So they, they believed that Jesus was coming any moment, right? And so there was a moment when, uh, I think it was Wilford Woodruff. I'll have to go find it. But he's out planting a fruit tree. And a member came up and said, why are you even planting a fruit tree when Jesus is coming so quickly and so soon? And And his response was, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, I'd live my life to be ready when the Savior comes at any moment, but today I'm planting my tree. And so it's one of those things of living on the land as for years. To live and to be here and to exist as though we will always be here, but always be ready for the Lord to change things at any time. Always be ready for life to change things. And I, you know, I, I have to get myself out of this way of talking about it too, as if God's the one dictating my life. He's the one up there with chess, playing the, you know, the game of Shiloh chess. So like moving things here and there. I, I think <laughs> Let's I'm see ways, how he reacts to this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's the way that our culture religiously and polit and socially and everything else, that's the way we think about it and talk about it. But in reality, I think life is just life. Things just happen because they happen. And God is in and through all of it. And so it's not that he's the one who's like making this happen and making this bad thing happen, because I think that's an atrocious way of looking at trauma, that trauma is God-induced, that these moments when we, we experience these things, well, that's just God doing that. I think that's a deplorable way of looking. I think life is just life, and we learn how to see reality and forgive reality, and then to exist in those moments, and God is with her in that process. Otherwise, when God becomes the actual initiator of it and the cause of, of it, it's just it, that makes for some really, really crazy theology <laughs> that as I've, I've thought about it for 20 years, it just doesn't really come to any really good fruit as I've been able, ever been able to find. You know, and I, I think a lot of this discussion goes with the, the idea of, of just of just being, you know, like that we're not concerned with 
whatever the these external circumstances are that might need to change that might need to affect our mode of being all of a sudden that's a very reactionary way of looking at it as if we're supposed to always be responding to some external stimuli whereas you know at lehigh kind of puts it in things to act and things to be acted upon you know as if we're we're treating ourselves as if we're just always things to be acted upon right that that we wouldn't want to to live purposely live, live uh, as for years as, as you say but rather we're the actors we're the thing we're the ones making things happen and we're not concerned with a particular outcome but we're also not going to live our life as if the outcome is going to be something specific that um you know we take into context the the second coming right you know like uh, my thought when you told that story about Wilford Woodruff because I couldn't remember if I'd heard it before I mean I have now but I couldn't remember <laughs> at the time was um you know why you're planting a fruit tree Christ is coming and, and you know my thought was like well, you don't think we're gonna eat fruit after Jesus comes <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know what's I think our day-to-day life like even if we view it in a very millennialist type of way um, our day-to-day life, what is supposed to be different about that, right? If if we're living today, the path taught us by the Savior and the Sermon on the Mount, what's to change when he comes? That is, that's it. That's the way. And so... There's not, there doesn't have to be a change in our mode of being, so to speak, this dramatic change. We, we're just, we just are who we are. Um, we're, we're being, we're existing. And so, you know, taking it back to this idea that we would, we would somehow live or exist on, on the land as, as they are, um, anticipating some, major upheaval or change all the time it really takes our focus our attention away from just living in the moment and becoming or or being who we're meant to be as God's children and it's kind of goes again back to the take no thought for tomorrow again we discuss this that doesn't mean we don't think about tomorrow it doesn't mean we don't store food it doesn't mean we don't, you know, prepare for things that that might potentially happen that that could be uh, disastrous. It means that we still take every moment of every day to live our life and find peace in those moments, and we're not constantly anxious about some uh, potential uh, upset of our status of the status quo or of our lifestyle. Right? Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love tying that back to the the sermon that way. That's yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go reread that just for with that in mind tonight. Hmm. Well, Ben, do you have anything more to say about one nineteen? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, you were talking about you know the the statement on the church website about um, tithing and stuff. I, I think I would just say you know there's there's doesn't seem to be any justification whatsoever um, by for a, a church leader to go beyond. Um, the question um, that they are entrusted to to ask, which is, 
do you pay? I don't even know if the question is, do you pay a full tithe or an honest tithe? Now I don't remember. I want to say honest, but, but <laughs> you know, either way, it doesn't really matter. Do you pay a full tithe? That's it. Yeah. It, it's kind of like the question, do you live the word of wisdom? You know, do you obey the word of wisdom? There's, you don't get into these definitions because that isn't supposed to be the point. Yeah. Um, but we, we, you know, we, we make it the point anyway so often. Yeah, I like that. You know, and, and I liked when they when they included the you know, do you do you consider yourself worthy? I think that was really the the ultimate question uh, of that, and the answer should always. be I've said yes. before that should be the only question, right? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is, you know, as we've said we've said before that we are always already worthy, and repentance is the process by which we come around to that and to recognize that. Yeah, because the actions that we take that we consider and call sin are simply the actions that we take in living that false self and not really who we really always are. And, and so, yeah, love it. You know, in a, in a temple context, we've talked about this before in terms of cleanliness and how cleanliness um, in a ritualistic sense, isn't the same as sin. It's more just like preparedness to engage in the mode or, or preparedness to be in the frame of mind in order to pull the meaning that we need out of the mode that, that strengthens our relationship with God. So in that sense, we might even say not worthy, but do you consider yourself prepared? You know, something like that, I think really gets more at the heart of the matter for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at that. Well, next week we are covering section 121. Um, I have been anxiously waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the 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 climax, right? Yeah, this is you know I I don't know of a uh, of a of a section in, in a group of scripture you know on uh, you know from forty one through forty four that I've quoted more from in the last year. Um, yeah, it's that's absolutely beautiful. There's a lot. There's, there's going to be a lot to say about this. So I look I look forward to next week. Sure. Well, until then, thank you everybody for listening, and we will see you back next week. Until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>